You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Midweek. My name is Drew. Uh, I know you're sad to not see Adam Karshner. I am too. I enjoy looking at Adam. He is one of my good friends, but <laughs> the band laughed more than y'all. Uh, all of it to say, I'm super excited to be here. Um, I've been, I had the pleasure of serving on staff with Kensington for nine years. We're working with young adults for the past six, as well as sometime occasionally dropping in here at Clinton Township, being able to speak and to, to all of us here today. So I'm excited to be here. Um, but today, I want to just dive right in, and I want to give you the message title, because why not just jump right to it, right? That's what I'm talking about. I heard midweek was the best crowd to speak to. Is that right? That's what I heard. That's what I heard. So today's message title is The Greatest Threat to Your Faith. That's right. What could it possibly be? What's the greatest threat to your faith? But because we're talking about threats, you know, having some maybe mistrust towards God, I wanted to talk about some things that make me feel like I can't trust people just for some fun. So I've compiled, like, who, whoever watched Dave Letterman? back in the day, you know his top 10 list? I came up with like a top 10 list of things that make me feel like I can't trust people. Hopefully you can resonate with some, so I'm just gonna go for it because I wanna have some fun. Number one, people who make comments about your physical appearance. Doesn't it just not sit well with you? It just kind of feels weird, it feels cringy. Number two, all right, we're moving right along. People who have to one-up your story. Isn't that the worst feeling? You can't have anything special. They gotta have it more special. We love that for them. Number three, people who like Qdoba more than Chipotle. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but y'all know Chipotle's got way better ingredients. Amen? Amen. There's something about that. Just say so that's different. Anyways, number four, this one I I feel like is going to get a nice resounding mmm from the crowd. If not, I've already primed you to do that for number four. People who are rude to waiting staff. Isn't that such a red flag? Ever been on a first date and someone was rude? You're like, never again. This is the end of this first date. Number five, people who don't stop talking after your sixth. Dang, that's crazy. <laughs> Dang, so crazy, so weird. The worst is actually when you're the one. I actually caught myself literally yesterday where I was the guy talking. They're like, wow, that's crazy. And I was like, no, stop. Couldn't stop. I had to finish. The worst feeling. Number seven. Oh, I, I, I miscounted. Number, I, uh, number five. Uh, or sorry, number six. When you try to empathize with people over their issues, and then they deny that they're struggling with that issue. Like this, how this sounds is when you're just like, oh my gosh, that must be so hard for you. I'm so sorry. They're like, oh, it's not that hard. It's like, what's, why can't you just say it's hard? Oh, it's not a problem. I mean, most people will struggle with it, but I'm not. Like, really? Okay, check yourself. Number seven, people who have androids. Kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Number eight, people who clap when the plane lands. Why you got to do that? Isn't that weird? Like, what are we applauding for? Like, they, they, they did their job. If not, we'd be dead. But we are dead, so I guess we're like, thank you for saving our lives. Okay, even though I signed up for this. Number nine, when a guy who's my age calls me bud, I can't stand it. Any of the other fellas in the room? I hate that feeling. I don't know what it's like for older generations, but for me, when some guy says bud, it's immediately condescending. 
They're like, I'll get that for you, bud. It's like, what? I am not your champ, you know? <laughs> Anyways, and finally, number 10, people who heat up tuna in the office microwave. What is your deal? Or any type of fish product for that matter. Like you, it's polluting the air. Oh my gosh. Endless red flags, really. Endless. But uh, it's funny. <laughs> I give this list because I think deep down, we all, again, we all resonated with so many on the list because we can all kind of sense suspicion. We all can sense mistrust when something just doesn't feel right. And this happens in our faith. We have issues between us and God that just don't feel right. They feel like red flags. We don't have the answers to certain questions. So the question I want to ask is, what is the most dangerous belief to have as a Christian, right? Because if we're talking about the greatest threat to your faith, what is the most dangerous thing a Christian could believe that might throw their faith off the rails, that might danger them from not believing in God or believing in the goodness of God, right? Maybe it makes them stop praying, right? For example, I'll give you a few. Is it uh, Bible stories not being literally true, but metaphorically true? Maybe for you, that makes you feel really scared, because if you can't trust a story in the Bible to be literal, whether it's six-day creation, you know, or a story of David and Goliath, and those are metaphorical, then what else is metaphorical? Is Jesus metaphorical? That makes us feel scared inside where we don't have truth. And if we don't have truth, we don't have confidence that God is who he says he is. Is that the most dangerous thing for a Christian to believe? What about having a perfect Bible that has zero contradictions? Because maybe you've caught caught in the rabbit trails of YouTube or watched God's Not Dead 2 for all I care. And maybe for you, you're afraid that maybe there's a lot in the Bible that doesn't add up or has contradictions between dates, times, settings, characters, things that, you know, God says to do and then over here he says not to do. And it might feel kind of threatening, doesn't it? To feel like maybe, is that the most dangerous thing to believe that the Bible has maybe some contradictions? Is that the thing that would make someone not ultimately believe in God? What about God allowing suffering and evil, right? If he's the author of suffering and evil, then why would I ever want to believe in this God? What about people who have never heard of God or can't read the Bible? What about these people who have never heard? Is that the most terrifying thing to believe that it's just okay for people who've never heard the message of Jesus and that they're just going to be okay? And finally, what about the idea between free will versus God having control or predestination, right? Do we make the choice to choose God or does God do the choosing of us and he wins us back to him through his choosing? What idea, what belief is the most threatening or dangerous thing to believe as a Jesus follower? Now here's the thing. As I listed these ideas, some of you were like, I don't care about that. Maybe like there's two or three. But then I said one, you're like, absolutely the answer. Here's the thing. Someone else had a different answer than you. Obviously, it'd be foolish of me to say there is one most dangerous idea that's going to threaten your faith, but then that wouldn't be true for the person sitting next to you who has a totally different one. So what is the most dangerous thing if I'm talking about the most threatening thing? Well, here's the answer. There is not the most threatening thing. I actually wrote it down. The most dangerous belief is actually the one that threatens your view of God. Not just the idea, not the content of the idea, because as I just said, someone else may not have a problem with that idea or what it says. But that idea about God threatens how you view him, whether he's good, whether he's loving. 
whether he's available and accessible to you, whether he's dependable, whether he'll answer your prayers. There's something at stake for you. That's why it feels dangerous to you. But more importantly, the view of God. In fact, I love uh, researchers in uh, science. In fact, for me, one of those most threatening and dangerous ideas is science because I love exploring the world. I'm so fascinated by it. I think it's intriguing. And for me, for the longest time, that was a huge threat to my faith because I thought if science explains so much and the Bible seems hard to understand sometimes, man, that makes me feel like I don't know how to trust this Jesus character. And so many people feel the same way that maybe if science is so true, it can't be congruent. And speaking of science, um, when it comes to our view of something, usually our view of something determines how we interact with it. If we have a good view of someone, we'll interact with them like they're a good person. If we have a bad view of someone, we're gonna interact with them like they're a bad person. In fact, they did this with marriage studies. They, they found this. You don't have to use communication to solve every fight in marriage. Did you know this? They said that it's actually, they studied a lot of couples and they found the ones that, uh, the ones that had the highest uh, marital quality were the ones who didn't necessarily have to communicate through every single issue. Usually, it's the couples that had a overwhelmingly positive view of their partner. They just believed to their core that their person was a good person and they could kind of shrug it off. I think of my grandparents, Dolores and Bob. You know, they'd always get into fights because, you know, my grandmother was very exhausted of Bob, but Bob would always come over like, Dolores, come on, give me a kiss. Come on, just a small kiss. And she'd look at over the grandkids and be like, God, Bob, no, like, I'm just done with this. And, and he'd look over at us all and be like, she's nuts about me. <laughs> and every time she just couldn't help but be like, that's so charming. And, you know, she'd fall for it. The overwhelmingly good view, you don't have to go back and talk about it because you go, you know, Bob's charming. He's a good guy. Yeah, does that make me tired? But I don't got to sift it out because his intentions are good. I trust him as a human. I trust him. I trust his heart. But when you don't trust someone's heart, you ever been in a relationship like this? Have you ever heard of a parent like this before? You don't trust their intention. Their intention is out to hurt and get you. You have a fundamentally bad view of them. And what's even more fascinating, this is done by the research group called the Gottmans. They're famous marriage researchers. When you have a fundamentally bad view of someone, even neutral events, you will interpret as negative. Even if nothing's bad, you'll interpret it as bad. In fact, you'll even interpret the good things as bad. It's called the fatal attraction. You ever like have that thing for that spouse or that person you think it's so attractive and then it becomes the very thing you hate about them? Man, I love their big personality. Then you're like, be quiet when we're in public. Why do you have to have such a big personality? It's like, but you love this about me. That's why you married me. Because if they walk through the door and the wind blows too hard and it slams the door behind them, you will attribute it to their character of not being careful enough because they are just not a good person. In reality, it was just the wind. See, this is what happens in our relationship with God. If we feel like there are things that threaten our faith, that might damage our view of God. And if it damages our view of God, we might not experience relationship with him. Our prayer life suffers. We begin to walk on eggshells around God because our view has fundamentally shifted. You ever felt this before? And so today, I want to Look at a story, a story that you've heard of and you're gonna eye roll over because you've heard it a thousand times and it's the story of Jonah and I'm gonna make two promises to you. Number one, I am not here to talk about how you, if you try to run away from God, he will find you and hunt you down and God has a very particular set of skills like Liam Neeson and Taken and that you know if you run away from God, he's gonna find you. Like no, not doing that message. The other message I'm not doing, I am not talking about whether it's a literal or metaphorical fish. There are plenty of miracle stories that claim the miraculous existence of 
miracles, blah, blah, blah. That's not the purpose of here. Now that I have that disclaimer out of the way, what I am gonna talk about is what Israelites would have been hearing had they been listening to the story of Jonah. But before we get going, we're gonna pause for a moment to acknowledge the offering moment. That if you came in, we don't have ushers uh, this evening, but we do have offering buckets on your way out. And we do giving around here, not because we're trying to collect dollars and stack the you know, the, the, the Benjamins, if you will. It's actually just about mission. It's about how we can give back and impact the local community. And so if you have joined us for any period of time, we'd welcome you to give text uh, through texting or through our app or on our website. And we just wanna say, again, thank you so much for your continued generosity. So let's take a look at this story of Jonah. And um, most Israelites, as they were hearing the story of Jonah, if you can imagine the story of Jonah being told inside of an Israelite house, all the children, maybe it's their first time hearing it. There's wonder and awe on their faces about what's about to happen. Can you please tell us that story of Jonah? I don't remember all the parts of it. And they're gathering around to hear it. Israelites would have not been maybe trying to go, did this literally happen like that? They were asking, is God really like that? Now, to understand Jonah, we got to understand something else. Who in here has ever heard of the play called The Crucible before? By Arthur Miller, The Crucible, maybe you studied in school. So The Crucible is a story written in the 1950s about the Salem witch trials that happened in the 1600s. Now, of course, The Crucible, for example, is not trying to recall a very specific narrative that happened from that, but it's, it's taking a real setting and scenario that happened and writing to a present day event in the 1950s. And what was happening was McCarthyism. This guy, McCarthy, was accusing people of communism and was putting them on trial in front of courts. And so the play was written to speak to a modern day event using an old setting. And most, many scholars, not all, many scholars would believe the story of Jonah is similar to this. It was roughly written, if we're going to have a timeline, we'll put our number one. The book of Jonah is likely written between the years 500 and 400, uh, years before Jesus walked the earth, 500 BCE through 400. But the setting is actually in the past. It's about 200 years before that. It's in the year 750 BCE. This is during the reign of a king named King Jeroboam II, who was called an evil king. But when this king was reigning, Israel was prosperous. In fact, we see King Jeroboam and Jonah in the same sentence in the book of Kings. It says this, King, uh, he, King Jeroboam II, was one who restored the boundaries of Israel, meaning he expanded their borders in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through who? His servant Jonah, son of Amittai. See, this is during a time where Israel believed God would always be on our side because of our morals and ethics and obedience, a belief that we were invincible and nothing bad would ever happen to us. However, there was another prophet named Amos who has his own book in the Old Testament. He was saying something completely different at the exact same time. He was saying, actually, there's a lot of disobedience and wickedness happening amongst God's people. And if you're not careful, God may execute his, just, his justice on you as well. And the people did not listen. And it was a warning because a couple decades later from this time, the Assyrians, a world power that was conquering nations, laid siege to Israel in 722 
and deported all of God's people out of the land and out of this region called the northern uh, tribes of Israel. And then those northern tribes never recovered economically and all the people never returned back home as there was a divided kingdom in Israel. So if you think about it, 200 years in the future, these Israelites are hearing a story that they certainly would be paying attention to because here's what happens in Jonah chapter one. It says this, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it because their wickedness has come up against me. Now, what's so significant about a city called Nineveh? Well, Nineveh today is located near Mosul, Iraq. But back then, it was a part of the Assyrian Empire. So if you're an Israelite crowded in a home and you're a child, you're listening to a story from the past about your enemies that did destroy your country. It already happened. The same way that maybe we would hear the story of the miracle on ice in 1980, we'd be hearing about USA and Russia being in a cold war. The same way these people are hearing a story about the Assyrians. It's cause for alarm. Now, if you, if you want to pay attention to one particular theme here, it's a theme call of, of going up and coming down, going up and going down. Because in verse one, it says, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, it says, uh, God said to arise. In the Hebrew, it says to get up and go to Nineveh, the great city, because of their wickedness. And so at this point, Jonah, his view of God is that he's unfair. Most people think Jonah ran away because he was you know, scared to just obey God in general. No, Jonah was afraid because he was going to go to a world power that would crucify him. So he's thinking, wait, why if they're our enemy or, or we're afraid of them, would I ever try to go give them a message from God that might save their country and they might repent? I would never do that. And if it didn't work, they might kill me. So Jonah running away had nothing to do with just being scared to obey God. It had everything to do with his very literal survival. How many of us feel like God asks us to do things that feel unjust or our view of God is unjust? Maybe for you, you raised children the best you could to follow Jesus and then one day they walked away and you're like, why did I do all that I was obedient to? Here's all these other people. They have all these godly children. I bet they didn't read the Bible at night. I bet they didn't pray at night. Or maybe in your marriage, you're like, I didn't try to do all the, 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 the do's and do nots of dating and marriage. I tried to do it in the godly way. And yet here I am in a marriage that's miserable or having been divorced and separated from someone. And I've tried to follow Jesus and there's a sense of injustice. What about all these other people who never followed God and they have better relationships with their kids or their spouse or their parents? Where's the justice? When I'm following Jesus and my relationships are in disarray. This is maybe how Jonah's feeling, a sense of injustice. Continue on in verse three. So here's Jonah's, Last time he chooses to get up. It says that Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And so here he starts his descent down. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now this is really important in the Hebrew mind. To flee the presence of God was basically asking that you didn't want to live anymore. That's the metaphor language they use. You see it in Psalms and in Genesis. And so God, he appoints a storm to a boat that Jonah's on, and Jonah begins to become afraid. 
And he starts to go down even more. In verse five, it says, but Jonah had gone down below into the stern of the ship in the storm. And he laid down and he had fallen sound asleep. And so the captain approached him and said, how are you sleeping? Get up and call on your God. And so all the men of the boat come together. They roll some ancient dice to figure out whose God is mad. And it's Jonah's, of course. Jonah's God is mad. And so they don't want to. They try to save Jonah's life, throw things overboard. It's not working. And so they just have to throw Jonah overboard. The bottom of the boat wasn't far enough down for Jonah to escape from God's judgment. So it says, so they picked him up. Notice, Jonah's not doing any of that. It's being forced upon him and hurled him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. And then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now here is something utterly astounding about this passage. That's also a theme. Here is the first mention in the book of Jonah about something that is very wrong. A godly prophet is becoming godless. And godless pagans are becoming godly. There's a reversal happening in this story that's shocking the reader. And it says this in verse 17, And the Lord designated a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Now here's what even gets more peculiar. The word fish in these two verses changes gender in the Hebrew. In verse 17, the fish is a male. And then in verse 1, it's a female fish. And then spoiler alert, you know, when Jonah gets spit back out, the fish becomes a male again. And most people wonder, was this a mistake by the author? Is this some sort of weird thing that's happening? What's being communicated? And there is a purpose for that. And we're going to find out in just a moment. But out goes Jonah into the water, or down with the, into the stomach of the fish, and he continues his descent down. It says this, water encompassed me to the point of death. The deep down flowed around me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head and I descended to the base of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. And then here is his transformation. He says, but you have brought up my life from the pit, Lord my God. Water. Here we see Jonah floating in water. In the Hebrew mind, water was chaos. People didn't know what was under the water. They didn't have our technology. It was the most terrifying thing. And so when you see God in Genesis 1 hovering over the waters, it's chaos. There's, it's formless and void. And so here we see Jonah in the chaos of the primordial waters of pre-creation. What's interesting is in this passage where Jonah says, but you have brought up my life from the pit, where Jonah begins to talk more and more about how God has saved him, we begin to see something completely different than everything you were taught in Sunday school about the story. Everything you were taught in Sunday school is that the fish was God's judgment. It's the opposite. The fish was God's mercy. It was God's mercy on Jonah. It saved him. And the reason why the gender of the fish changes is because it's referring to a rebirth, a type of pregnant fish. That's why it's metaphorical. It's not speaking literally of the gender of the fish. It's saying, no, this fish was pregnant. And it, you even see in some of the language, it refers to, it has womb language, like, you know, my, my, I was in the belly of Sheol, Jonah says. 
we begin to see that Jonah's heart begins to become changed. And here's where we see the message that Israel needed to hear from God. Is that the same way that God is unfair and will send a message of mercy to their mortal enemies that will destroy them. And the same way that God will convert the pagans on the boat is that God will save the person who knows better or knows the best. That even his own people who know him and have disobeyed him and run away from him, God's grace is that unfair that it will capture even their heart too. Jonah is reborn and his view of God changes from unfair to kind and gratitude. I think many of us do not realize the real view we have of God. Here's how you know how you view God. How do you approach him when you talk to him? Do you start with a long apology? I had a massive realization that I would talk to God like he was an abusive partner. It sounded by my prayers like I was in an abusive relationship. God, no, 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 I'm sorry. I just wasn't thinking of you totally. I just, I wasn't being mindful of you. I'm sorry. I should have known better and I messed up and I made that decision anyways. I'm really sorry. God, no, 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 I'm sorry. It's, it's just not about me. It's, it's always about you. God, no, 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 just, just, I can't do anything apart from you. I just, I, I only need you. I, anything that's good is of you, but anything that's bad, it's probably my fault. Just, if you could just remind me and just point out the sin in my life and the depravity, just God, then it would really change me. But I'm so sorry. You're just so worthy. You're so good. There is no healthy or secure relationship that we talk to people like that. Not even in our most distressed relationships will we approach someone with that type of attitude. The only time we attend to a relationship with that posture or attitude is when we are being harmed. And when we are being harmed, our nervous system goes online and says, it's my fault. I must be deserving of it. And how many of us approach God like it's our fault? He's so perfect and holy and he's got the judgment and punishment. If you want to know how you view God, how do you talk to God? Is it filled with shame and blame? Is it filled with just so much fear and cowering? In fact, I would argue that if, if you struggle in a prayer life, it's likely because you're afraid of God on some level. And this is no shame point. It's, a, it's an actual compassionate. When we feel safe and we have a secure base and we are no, and we are sure we are loved, we will constantly open up and explore things. I've been married for almost seven years now. Man, there's some things you are terrified to talk about with your spouse in year one, amen? Because you're afraid, oh my gosh, this might rock the boat. But what happens? The more you open up and share your honest truth, and the more you're accepted, the more you realize it's okay to share your honest truth. It's okay to not have to hide anymore. You can be honest and authentic. And of course, there's some tension in all of that. But the more secure of a relationship you have, the more you relearn how to have intimacy, that it's being accepted regardless of your failures and flaws. And isn't this the point of the gospel, that all the sin and shame was removed from you, and that Jesus died for you so that there wouldn't be any barriers between you and God. And all of us live a life where we believe God is mad. And we go, I know, but that's supposed, that's, that's supposed to how it's, you know, be. Like, well, I'm a sinner. Are you sure? Are you sure that's how it's supposed to be? Really? 
it's supposed to sound like you're afraid of him all of the time. And he's a better, loving, heavenly father. And he's supposed to be the most perfect, understanding, all-knowing being. And yet he's the one who has the least amount of understanding for your situation and context that he's seen billions of times. How do you view God? As the Israelites listen to the story and they realize that God is unfair and that his love extends beyond just the borders of their own people and his compassion goes towards even their mortal enemies that would destroy the people that he loves, they hear something else. That the Ninevite king decides to repent and change his mind. That all the Assyrians repented and that was it when Jonah gave the message to the Ninevites. And that was it. And Jonah was so upset. Jonah was mad. He's like, are you serious? You're going to give grace to them? You're going to give compassion to them? I can't hardly believe it. And God appoints this plant over Jonah while he's sitting there watching the city and protesting against God. And then as that plant is there providing him shade, it dies. And Jonah becomes super upset. He goes, wait, where's my shade? And God goes, look, hold on. Are you kidding me? You're more mad about a plant that you didn't even have 10 minutes ago, and yet you have no care for the 120,000 people and also much cattle, he says. I don't know about you, but uh, there was this kind of funny thing where uh, there was like an office giveaway of a lot of Mac computers, and I was like, oh my gosh, babe, on the phone, we're going to get a free Mac. This is going to be sick. And they're like, oh my gosh, people are taking two. I was like, oh my gosh. And so I got a Mac and I brought back the monitor. And I was like, dude, this is like a super expensive monitor. I can't wait. This is going to be awesome. Me and my wife are on the phone. She's like, go back and get another one. I was like, I can't just go back and get another one. Like, I just feel bad, right? She's like, no, go back and get another one. We get into this fight over going back to get another one. And I'm sitting here being like, I didn't even have one Mac computer 10 minutes ago. Now, look, it's trivial. We want things that bring our security. But how many of us are more concerned and have more emotional reaction to the housing market than we do for the people who live in poverty or in oppression? How many of us have more of an emotional reaction towards our security being affected that might even just be luxuries than people who are living in trauma and need mental help? It's so easy to cut off people who are in pain or in suffering. It's easy to say, well, maybe they did something to to, to deserve it. But in the process, God says, I don't even care. Don't you just care about them as human beings because they're image bearers of me? Shouldn't I care about them because I just love them? This is what God's saying. And so in your world, as you think about God, Everywhere in scripture, he's constantly confronting cultures to say, I'm more inclusive and loving than you think I am. In fact, Jesus does this. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus begins to correct all of the the misconceptions about God. He even begins to call him Abba. And then Paul, who seems to be almost inventing this new religion called Christianity, he even begins to say, I'm beginning to think that God didn't even just save the Israelites, but the entire world. It's almost like the trajectory of the Bible was making room for more people than we ever thought was possible. And so if we're in 2023, how much more compassionate and loving of a view of God should we carry in light of God intersecting with culture and revealing a better picture of who he is? And if you don't trust me, you can actually trust science. And people who aren't Christians who actually studied this idea of what it means to have a good relationship with God, because they found, and these, again, were, you know, non-Christian scholars, they actually did a study on um, 
you can have an attachment with God the way you can with a partner or a parent. And they said this, I'll actually read the findings. It says, if people who have secure relationships with God have better mental health, imagine that. Secure attachment to God has been found to prospectively predict increases in self-esteem and optimism over time. Additionally, secure attachment to God has predicted more experiences of transformative, sacred moments. Meaning like divine moments or spiritual moments is what they're really saying. But then the opposite, if you have an insecure attachment with God, it means you have worse mental health. They say this, insecure attachment to God was associated with diminished mental health over time. And this effect was significant above and beyond personal attachment. What it's saying is, is in insecurity, we have worse mental health than we have insecurity with people who we're attached to. Because the consequences are greater when the divine being of the universe believes that you're worthy of hate. How do you view God? Who do you believe doesn't deserve God? Because chances are, when we see in Jesus making room for all people at the foot of the cross, removing all sin and shame, no exceptions, so that we have a relationship with him, the very foundations of what we believe says that God doesn't hold things against people. God doesn't blame things against people. He's removed it from us. That's the gospel. And Jesus, people thought he would establish this kingdom that would rule, but instead it was a legislation of love. It was a simpler kingdom one that was ruled by peace and security, that you're sure you're being loved. I love this quote from author Sue Johnson. She says, we are never as strong and as safe as when we are sure we are loved. Isn't that true? When you know you're loved by God, you'll never be as strong and safe. Father, tonight may we correct a view. May you correct a view. There's some dangerous thoughts that threaten our faith that make us feel like you might not be good, but God, as we see in scripture, the trajectory of scriptures that you get better and better and that you are the one who corrects views. Even for the Israelites who believe their enemies were unlovable because of their choices, God, you wanted to show them that even they're worthy of mercy. God, may we humble our hearts to you in this kingdom, this legislation of love that we desire to have. We thank you in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.